All right. Well, that last song was certainly a prayer, a prayer for, uh, for God to speak to us through his word. So I expect that's what he'll do today. So last week we talked about uh, persistence, even insistence in prayer. And I tell you, if there was ever a time in our country or in the life of our church where we needed persistent, insistent, big, bold prayer, it is right now. So I hope that you are putting into practice what we talked about last week. Uh, I, am, I am certainly trying to do that. So dirty politics is not a new thing. We're going to see it today. Uh, some of you are familiar with the word gaslighting. You know what that is? I looked up the definition. Gaslighting is a form of psychological manipulation in which a person or a group covertly sows seeds of doubt in a targeted individual or group, making them question their own memory, perception, or judgment. In other words, you'll think something is one way, and folks will tell you, no, no, it's not that way. I know that's what you saw, but you didn't really see that. What you saw is this other thing that we're going to make up. That's what gaslighting is. And uh, we're going to see that that is not a new practice either, because the Jews in Jesus' day (laughs) were doing that regarding Jesus. You know, before the 2020 election, I would, I would sometimes hear uh, criticism of, of President Trump, and some of it was highly warranted and accurate, and other of it was just confusing because I heard that Trump was a poor businessman who squandered the fortune left to him by his father. And I thought, what? <laughs> I mean, if you want to criticize him, pick one of the areas that is a legitimate criticism. And then I... I learned, too, from watching the news that Trump took a great Obama economy and tanked it. And I was, I was just going, I don't understand what they're saying, you know. Uh, so people will try to do that. They'll, they'll try to tell you something that is clearly not the case so that you will start to think about it in a different way. And it's not new because these Jews were doing it to Jesus back in Jesus' day. Now, if you're attacking any president or any politician, you can come up with real legitimate uh, cases of hypocrisy and other things, and you can criticize them on that. But what do you do if you are the opponent of Jesus? I mean, how exactly do you discredit him? Well, you can't say he's a hypocrite. You can't say, hey, there's this past sin in his life. You are reduced to nothing but this gaslighting thing where you say, don't believe your lying eyes. Instead, believe what we're telling you. So let's read today's passage. It's Luke eleven fourteen through 28, 26, 28, I don't know. Verse 14, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is the finger of God, by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd cried out and raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now that's a... For me, that's a really long passage, but we're going to try to get through all of that. Now, Jesus here proves the old saying that you can't please all the people all the time. He never did anything wrong, and yet he had people accusing him of being a servant of Satan. And you may say, well, it doesn't say Satan, it says Beelzebul, but... Uh, that is what they had come to occasionally call Satan. Uh, what that word really means is Lord of the flies or Lord of the dung. All right, so they're saying that Jesus is doing what he's doing by the power and authority of the Lord of dung. In other words, they are calling God the Father Lord of dung. That is as, about as much blasphemy as you can get, isn't it? So even if you're literally perfect, you're going to get criticized. Does that make you, make, make you feel good, Jimmy? <laughs> you know, when uh, I got more criticism when I was picking out songs than I do when I'm preaching. It's weird how that works. Uh, I think part of that is the issue of uh, getting really worked up about what song we're doing is probably mostly done by people who don't know enough about the Word to fuss about the preaching. But anyway... Jesus was doing what was right and what was compassionate, and he was accused of operating via the power of Satan. Now, there was no way to deny the miracle works that Jesus was doing. I mean, you couldn't, uh, you know, this wasn't happening in one place, and then on the other side of the world, you were seeing a telecast about it, where the news anchors got to tell you a totally different story. There was no way to discredit what was actually happening because he would go into a town and he would take somebody who was part of that community who was lame or blind or crippled or demon-possessed and he would fix them and cure them. And then the people that knew that person would see him. So you just couldn't deny the miracles. They would have tried that had that been an option, but that wasn't an option. Look with me at verse 14. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. People were seeing these miracles live and in person. And that was the most exciting, weird thing that had ever happened, right? So they weren't keeping it to themselves. They were telling other people. This amazing thing happened. Jesus came and took Fred, you know, Fred, the guy that can't talk. And now he can talk because he's been healed. And the craziest and most amazing things were happening. So, again, they would have loved to deny the miracles, but that just wasn't an option. So here's what they did try in verse 15. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, people can fake supernatural occurrences. Watch uh, David Copperfield or some, other, or some faith healer on TV and you'll see a faked miracle, okay? 
But when something genuinely supernatural happens, there are only two possible sources. All right? Either God is doing it or an angelic power is doing it. Now, don't let me give you the impression that these are possibly even close to equal forces. They certainly are not. Are not okay? If uh, some people think of, of God and Satan as sort of equal forces, but God's a whole lot nicer and a little bit stronger. All right, that's kind of like saying, well, if, if Chris and I got into a fight, Chris is in better shape than I am, he's younger than I am, likely he'd win, right? But, you know, I could get really lucky and, and sneak in a shot, right? <laughs> that's the, the struggle they think is going on between God and Satan. But that is not it. It's more like Chris is doing battle to the death with a gnat, okay? Except that's not even a good comparison because you know what? Chris is a created being and a gnat is a created being. So it's more equal than God and Satan, okay? These are not equal powers by any stretch of the imagination. Satan was created as, as an angel, as a magnificent, powerful angel, but he was created. For him to be uncreated takes a thought from God, okay? So these are not equal powers. But Satan and his demons are able to do amazing things that will amaze us. For instance, you remember when Moses went and he took the rod of God and he threw it down and it became a serpent. Well, the magicians in Egypt did the same thing with their rods. Now, how'd they do that? Well, I don't know. It may have been a David Copperfield thing, but probably not. It was probably some demonic, kind of magical, impressive thing. And then... uh, there were things that they could do and they could imitate, but then there were things that they couldn't imitate because God said, well, you know, I'll prove to them that I am stronger than all the gods of Egypt, right? So the Pharisees had been putting out this fake news about Jesus. They had been saying that he was doing miracles by the power of Satan because they had to come up with some excuse why the people should not listen to Jesus, even though he was doing these amazing things. So let's check out this misinformation campaign that began with the Pharisees. In Matthew 12, 24, it says, But when the Pharisees heard it, that they heard of the miracles, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the Pharisees start this misinformation campaign. They taught it to the people. In John seven twenty, the crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. So they had learned the party line was, that Jesus has a demon. In uh, John eight forty eight, the Jews answered him, are, you, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? In John ten twenty, many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? The Pharisees slandered Jesus because they couldn't deny his miracles, but they had to try to discredit him one way or the other because he was certainly discrediting them. And then in verse 16 of Luke 11, we see this. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So they wanted to see more tricks. They didn't want the truth. They didn't want a sermon. They wanted more miracles for their entertainment. You know, people really haven't changed that much over the centuries. This misinformation campaign is as old as that. And folks wanting to come for entertainment rather than truth is certainly a current thing we find in our churches. So Jesus was astonishingly patient with these folks, though. 
Um, he was so patient with them that he attempted to reason with them. Christianity is a reasonable faith. Now, you don't have to lay aside your intellect to come to faith. You have to lay aside your pride to come to faith. So let's look at the logical case that Jesus presents here. And it's, it's astonishingly patient to me for these people to come and say, you are operating by the power of Beelzebul or Satan. And for him to not speak them out of existence on the spot is astonishing to me. That blasphemy takes the cake. But instead, he calmly and kindly begins to reason with them. He says, a divided kingdom cannot stand Luke eleven seventeen through 18. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them. Now, how do you know their thoughts? Well, sometimes he just knew the thoughts of people because he's God. But also, he may have known their thoughts because he was aware of this misinformation campaign. So we're not told if this is a supernatural thing or not. But one way or the other, he knew what they were thinking. And he said, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided house falls And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now, because of the nature of sin and selfishness, I I think the kingdom of Satan has some uh, inherent disunity because people who operate by sin and selfishness aren't always on the same page because they're looking out for their own good. But Jesus is saying, this doesn't make sense, guys. Um, you know, he's saying, why, why would Satan would be the worst operator ever if his own army can't function together? He's not that stupid. He's not having his own people fight themselves. And then he asks, why do you have this double standard? In verse 19, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So you see that blatant double standard that they have for their people and his people. Again, not much has changed, right? More than that, Jesus was way more successful than these Jewish exorcists. Um, People in verse 14, it said that when he cast out the demon and he started talking, that the people marveled. They had never seen anything like this. They weren't used to this. Why were they not used to this? They had Jewish uh, people who would go do exorcisms. So why weren't they used to seeing people who were demon-possessed freed from their possession? It's because these Jewish exorcists were not effective. They certainly weren't effective like Jesus was. Demons recognize and are forced to comply with divine authority. But look what happens when you take on a demon without divine authority. This is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I guess uh, kind of my smart aleck nature loves this. But if you look over in Acts 19, 11 through 16, you got some people who decide they're going to get in on this business of exorcism. I mean, you got to make a living. This sounds good. This is, a, this is a thing they'll try to do. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Now, Paul didn't have divine authority in himself, but he did have divine authority delegated to him, right? So Paul could go up to a demon and say, get out of town, and the demon had no option except to get out of town. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. 
Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So they said, this works for Paul. There's this little little, uh, formula that we're going to take and we're going to steal his deal and we're going to go profit off that. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Okay, what a difference. Jesus confronts these demons. He confronts one guy, as we studied in Luke already, that had an entire legion of demons in him. And they obeyed, and they obeyed immediately because of Jesus' divine authority. This guy goes in and says, hey, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. And what do they do? They beat up all seven. This guy beats up all seven of these dudes, whoops them, takes their clothes, and they run screaming out of the house. All right, we can see there is clearly a difference between the Jewish exorcists and Jesus and the apostles. So Jesus says, okay, if I'm doing this by the power of Satan or Beelzebul, then why is it that what I do works and your sons can't do this? So he's reasoning with them again. They should have recognized the genuine article. In uh, verse 20 it says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice this reference to the finger of God. Now God is a spirit and he doesn't have fingers, okay? But this is speaking metaphorically of the power of God. But it's speaking of the power of God in, a, in such a way that he's saying, hey, it's not the strong arm of God. It's not the power. It's the finger of God. Okay. So all it takes for Jesus to cast out these demons and even to cast out a legion of demons is just a little bit of effort from God. Just the finger of God. Jesus was familiar with the scripture, obviously. And familiar with this kind of language from the scripture. Exodus eight sixteen through 19. We were talking about Moses doing miracles and the magicians being able to do miracles. Let's go back to that for a second. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it becomes gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All of the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now these pagans, these demon working with, (laughs) these demon collaborating with pagans who could do these magic things and do these signs, they recognized the finger of God. And yet these Jewish leaders could not recognize the finger of God when they saw it. So Jesus is saying, guys, why can't you recognize the genuine article? Next we're going to see that Jesus is the stronger man in this analogy. He gives, a, gives an analogy and he says, hey, if a strong dude has his, his armor and his weapons and he's in charge of his palace and he's awake and you go try to take it, you can't take it. Because he's going to whoop you unless a stronger man goes in there. And he's saying, see, I'm the one that is stronger. That's why I can cast these demons out. Verse 21, when a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. 
But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus is explaining, it's simple, guys. Satan is being overthrown because I am stronger than he is. I want us to really focus on this next verse because there are a lot of people that think, I'm okay, God's okay, I'm going to leave him alone, he's going to leave me alone, I'm going to do my thing, I'm not going to torture puppies, I'm not going to kill people, I'm not going to do anything evil, so I'm going to mind my business, God's going to mind his business, and everything will be okay. There are a lot of folks that think that. (laughs) A lot of good old boys in Mississippi that think, I'm okay, God's okay, we got something worked out. Let's realize from this verse that that's not how things work. Verse 23 says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. There are only two meaningful categories of people. There are the people who are with Jesus and the people who are against Jesus. Um, Earlier, Steve was saying something about Dr. James Kennedy in, uh, where was he, Coral Ridge, I believe? He was a, a, a great pastor. Uh, he's, he's gone now. But Dr. Kennedy used to say, there are only two types of people. No, he said, there are only three types of people. People that can do math and people that can't. And that'll be funny in a minute when you think about it. But anyway, <laughs> there are only two types of people. And those are the people that are with Jesus and the people that are without Jesus. Now, I know uh, how people think. They're happy to be fans of Jesus. They're glad to admit that he was a good guy. They'll say he had good teaching. He was a good moral teacher. He was a great guy. Many lost people even think that Jesus was the Son of God. But they have not repented of their sins and placed their faith in him. And guys, Jesus being a good guy and not God is really not a rational option for us. If we think about who Jesus was... He was either a maniac who was blasphemous every day of his life, or he was the Son of God. He was either evil and led people astray on purpose, or he was completely insane and had delusions of grandeur, or he was the Son of God. Those are the only options that we have. So a good moral teacher is not one of those options. Because either he knew he was lying and he intentionally led people away from God. Or he was crazy. Or he was who he said he was. So there are a lot of people that are willing to be a fan but they don't follow. The thing we need to grasp in order to inform our evangelism. Is that that Satan worshipping maniac and the pleasant neighbor next door who is not a true disciple of Christ are headed to the same eternity in hell. My understanding is that there are different levels of reward in heaven and different levels of punishment in hell, but hell is going to be unspeakably horrible for all who go there. If that disturbs you, if that makes you concerned about your neighbor, then go tell them about Jesus. Tell them there's a way that they can be reconciled to God. Now that way is repentance and faith. Lots of folks forget the repent part when they're telling the gospel. They say, hey man, believe Jesus was the Son of God. Believe in Him and pray this prayer. 
Well, that's not what Jesus told us. Jesus preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. All of the apostles preached repentance. So that is part of the gospel. Now, to illustrate that, I want us to see in these next verses that you cannot be saved through moral reformation alone. Look with me at verse 24 through 26. It says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I'll return to my house from which I came. That my house should be disturbing to you. <laughs> that, that's what possession is when that demon says, I'll go back to my house. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So moralism without Jesus leaves you worse off than before you were. Um, Brother Don and I went to see a, well, a lot of people on this street. And one lady we were witnessing to, um, she said, I asked her if she would go to heaven when she dies. She said, no, I'd go to hell. And I said, okay, do you, do you want to learn how you can be reconciled to God? And she said, well, no, because I'm in a relationship with another woman, and just to be honest, that is more important to me than anything else. That was sort of encouraging to me, though, because she is way better off knowing her situation than she would be if she were in a liberal church, and that liberal church was saying, no, it's okay. God accepts you just like you are. God is okay with whomever you love. God is okay with you in this lesbian relationship. God is okay with you. You're safe. At least she knew she wasn't safe. So she was better off not being in that state of deception. Satan would rather send you to hell from the pew than the gutter any day. Because it's way better advertising for him. You see somebody in the gutter and you go, I don't want to be like that. You see a clean-cut, respectable person in the pew, and you go, yeah, yeah, I want to be like that. He would rather send you to hell from the pew than the gutter. Understand that Jesus does bring moral reformation. After you come to him, he changes who you are and what you desire. But moral reformation without Jesus is actually worse than no moral change, because then you feel okay about your sin. So what does bring blessedness and salvation? After Jesus says all these things, there's a woman in the crowd that wants to say something nice to Jesus. And she does say something nice to him. She says, and as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, he's not scolding her. He's not saying, no, Mary's not blessed. He's just saying, well, let me tell you what really is blessed. What really is blessed is those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, you, if you have grown up in this church, if you've gone to this church more than a week, you've heard the gospel. So you are blessed to hear the word of God. But will you keep it? Or maybe a better translation is obey it. Not talking about a moral code because that's not what the gospel is. Guys, when somebody says obey the gospel, they're not saying behave well. 
Because that's not what the gospel is. I've told you before, guys, that most people go to church and they hear, God's good, you're bad, you need to try harder. That's what people who have gone to a Baptist church for decades tell me sometimes when I witness to them. I'll say, hey, when you die, will you go to heaven? They go, I hope so. I said, well, on, on what basis would you go to heaven if you do? And they said, well, I've tried to be good. I've gone to church. You know, I've kept most of the commandments, stuff like that. And so even after decades of going and sitting in church services, they say, I hope I've behaved well enough to get to heaven. So when Jesus says you hear and obey the gospel, he doesn't mean you obey some list of rules that you have. What he means is that you put your faith in Christ and that you repent of your sins. That's what hearing and obeying the gospel is. So let me talk about repentance for a second because that's, kind of, that's, that's the part that nobody gets, okay? When you're talking to somebody that doesn't understand the gospel, it's repentance that they don't understand. What repentance is is unconditional surrender to God. It's coming to God and not saying, hey, I'm sorry, or not saying, hey, I know I did a bad thing. Again, guys, I've told you, if I, if I went over to Buddy and punched him in the face and I said, oh, I admit that I did that. He'd still be mad, wouldn't he? Who cares if you admit you did it? Uh, that's not going to fix the problem. What we need to do is change, right? We need to repent. We need to come and unconditionally surrender. We need to say, God, I've been in rebellion to you. I'm done. I'm done with rebellion. I am yours to command. That is what repentance is. And faith is this. You believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life that you couldn't live on your behalf. And now he is willing to trade his righteousness to your account and take all of your sin and put it on his account, which he already paid for on the cross. When you repent of your sins, come in complete and total surrender to God and place your faith in the finished work of Christ. That's how you hear and obey the gospel. So what do we do? Well, we hear and obey the gospel. But the other thing, guys, is we need to take that gospel to other people. Did you see what Jesus said here? He said, you're either with me and gathering with me, or on the total opposite end of the spectrum, you're against me and scattering. It's only one of those two things. Guys, I, haven't, I have some neighbors who are moral, upstanding people. Um, one of them is a, is a Jehovah's Witness. And I am concerned for her because she's a nice lady. She keeps her yard good, <laughs> better than I keep my yard. She keeps her trash uh, taken down. She's just a sweet lady, sweet as can be. But you're either for and with Jesus or you're against him. And the level of your morality is not the determining factor. Whether you've heard and obeyed the gospel is your determining factor. And so guys, when we see a neighbor that is having crazy parties and sleepovers with different women every night and all this kind of stuff, we may think, that guy's lost and needs the gospel. And yeah, he is lost and needs the gospel. But that really sweet little old lady that is like a second grandmother to you, if she hasn't heard and obeyed the gospel, then she's in the same camp against Christ. And so guys, that has to give us an urgency if we care anything about them to take the gospel to them. 
So what do we do? We hear and obey the word, the gospel. And we take that gospel to other folks. If you ask people how to be saved, they're going to tell you a list of behaviors you need to do. They're going to say you need to believe in God. They may tell you you need to go to church. They may tell you um, you need to keep the Ten Commandments. Those are, that's moralism without Christ, which is damnation. Now, if they say, I'm going to surrender, I've got to surrender to Christ, and I've got to place my faith in the work that he did, well, that's salvation that produces moral reformation, <laughs> but it can't work the other way around. We don't become holy to come to God. We come to God to become holy, right? Now, I'm telling you, your neighbors have the shotgun by the wrong end, most of them. <laughs> most of them think they've got to get their life right and then they'll be acceptable to God. We got a different message, a totally different message that says, no, you got to come to God and surrender and He will get your life right. So let's take that to them, otherwise, they're not going to know.